I remember going to an alternate, it was a, a conference, an alternate, alternate roots conference. And there were just, it was like a lunchtime, lunchtime session, um, I believe. And, you know, people were just kind of chilling outside. You know, there was this um, deck and there were just a bunch of women in this circle. And at the head of this circle was this just powerful, just beautiful elder. Oh my gosh. And, you know, it started the whole, it, the, the, the chill, the little kickback kind of started with um, a couple of jokes and, you know, just a lot of laughter. Just remember walking into that, accidentally walking into that space. And I, I end up like staying, I got stuck. Um, got stuck there. It was just like the laughter was infectious. The the the, the people were just beautiful and just uh, so welcoming. They invited me to to sit with them. And the elder that was sitting at the head of that circle, just started like you know was just just started singing or humming to herself. And the, and the others kind of just go ahead, go ahead. Like yeah, can you request them? Like you would have thought this was like you know. Whoever your favorite artist is, you know, like they were requesting like her to sing these songs. And so she started teaching everyone in the circle those songs. And it was the most beautiful thing that I, an organic thing. Like I had to pull my phone out and just like hit record so I could remember the moment, just sit back and listen to it again. But I felt so healed. I felt so whole in that circle. Um, it was no judgment. Everybody lifted their voice in some kind of way with like no fear um no apology and that was the most beautiful and freeing like experience that i'd ever had and to this day like to this day i still go back to that recording in my phone sometimes and just listen for the power that i felt like it literally brought me to tears in that circle and the the power that the like each person had physically there was, it was just such a a strong connection and memory. So, you know, that kind of oriented me to that, like just the whole, what cultural organizing also is about. It's like sitting and being present. We, I don't even think everybody knew each other's names at that point. Welcome to Stories from Home, Moving the Just Transition, and I'm your host, Keenan Rhodes. That was Monica Atkins, the co-executive director of the Climate Justice Alliance, a.k.a. Surreal, the artist behind Love Black Warrior, our theme song for this season. Throughout the season, we've touched upon the six tactics CJA and its members use to build Just Transition. Fight the bad, change the rules, move the money, build the bigger we, change the story, and build the new. Today, we focus on cultural organizing and changing the story. Movements have always used creativity and art to tell stories that challenge our assumptions, channel our brightest dreams of a world we want to see, and change its culture. Stories move us. People move us, relationships move us, and love moves us. Today, we talk about how it shows up in climate justice. 
We'll go through what it means to be a cultural organizer and how to use narrative strategy and story-based strategy to tell compelling stories through our work with our guides, Lenina and Chris from the Center for Story-Based Strategy and CJA's co-executive directors, Monica and Benishi. Stories from Home is an example. Storytelling is a human superpower. We are creatures who form narratives about ourselves. Climate justice is complex but our work is inherently creative as we come up with solutions and ways to heal environmental ills in our communities while fighting back against systemic oppression in all its forms. Our imaginations are vast and powerful and they fuel the future. So full disclosure, right? Initially, I thought the creative space was separate from the organizing I do. Honestly, for 20 some years, I thought and felt that. And so, you know, creativity and having that creative space for me was a refuge space, right? Like where I went to decompose or reground myself from my organizing. For Monica and Benishi, who are part of the all-women triad leadership structure at CJA, art is core to their organizing, leadership, and way of life, even if it always wasn't so clear. Benishi, a poet and playwright, comes from a family of artists. She's written plays on domestic violence, missing and murdered indigenous women, and indigenous identity politics, among others. When she was burnt out from organizing, she took a step back to focus on art. I went to the Institute of American Indian Arts, and so, which is my father's alma mater, right? My father went to that school in the late 60s. One project she worked on at the Institute was revelatory. I wrote this, I had this research project one time, and I, I wrote this, you know, did this collection of artists, interviews, uh, Native, Indigenous artists from the era of like the late 60s, early 70s, and about the sort of political nature of their artwork. One of the people I interviewed was my father and about five or six other artists, um, Native, Indigenous artists. And in that research, I, I really realized that for those artists, and my father in particular, there was no separation between his political ideology and his artistic expression. Yeah, I really started to think about it then that like they, they don't have to be separate. That doesn't have to be a part of my life that is com compartmentalized somewhere else that I just pull out when I need it or pull out when I want to have fun. And this sort of challenged their thinking about leadership. And so without saying, hey, I'm challenging your thinking about leadership, I offered them an opportunity to see me as an executive director of a national climate change organization who can say some of the things I need to say through poetry and see if like they will think about that in the future of like, oh, what does, you know, leadership look like? Monica grew up with music family, community, and love all around her. I would have to definitely say in Chicago, being raised on the south side of Chicago, having a mother that was like a singer, you know, she actually a singer. She wasn't a singer, and she was a, one of those people that really could get down. Like, I always kept music, you know, present in the home, and just, she actually was going to go on tour with Shaka Khan, but my grandmother was like, She's too young. She was like 16 years old, graduated early from school, just hard worker, you know, hard lover. Just many people loved her. And so the way that she, you know, brought people together in our homes for like, you know, nights of, of just like a 
cards and cooking and just having a lot of fun and laughter present. Family or not family, there were so many people that used to come to our house and was like family. You thought they were relatives because of just the way, you know, the relationships were and the way that the ways that my mom just invited everybody to the table without discrimination. So I learned that from my mother being raised on the South side of Chicago. That really led me to be interested in uh, the Black Renaissance movement, you know, and, and writers and artists, those Black artists and writers that were actually helping to tell the story of like what was happening in the South, you know, at a time where like the narrative was really being suppressed, Black people's voices were being suppressed and, you know, Black people were being oppressed. Um, Chicago has a very strong history in Black Renaissance movement. And so, you know, I saw those artists use their gifts, use their talents to really make those connections between the North and the South and not allowing like the narrative to get watered down and always having bringing message and substance. So, you know, that's a little bit of like where my my like organizing story um, starts, but also with more of my artists, like the artists in me. And then also, yeah, I guess I would say organizing too, because just watching my mother and how she moved and like how she created peace uh, between family members, between community members was such a, uh, just skill and a talent and took time and building real relationships, authentic relationships uh, with people. So I learned that from my mother for sure, I would say. Her music as Surreal the Messenger is a continuation of her maternal lineage. I mean, her moniker alone invokes strength and clarity. Who is Surreal the Messenger? Well, I try to be very clear in the name, um, but I would say that, like, the messenger. Um, Surreal is also a manifestation of my grandmother and my mother's prayers. Um, and, you know, in their spiritual connection and them, you know, leading and guiding me as a young child, I feel like those gifts, those spiritual gifts and connection to to spirit and the ancestors was passed down. And so through my writing, my poetry and my creative lens, I don't even like to just kind of label myself as, as one thing, but I do write poetry um, and music. And so um, it's really a process for me of like sitting down and meditating um, and really connecting to spirit. Monica became a union organizer just out of school until she joined Co-op Jackson, a network of black and brown cooperatives that aims to advance the development of economic democracy in Jackson, Mississippi. She was their Southeast Regional Organizing Director. You know, graduated, as I mentioned, from Jackson State, I you know, started organizing with a couple of different unions in the in Mississippi. First starting with the United Auto Workers and like the American Federation of Teachers and also work with the state and government employees, which the Communication Workers of America was a union that supported the local union. Um, and so working at the intersection of focusing on workers' rights with Mississippi being a right-to-work state, there was you know, definitely something always an issue in a workplace to organize around where workers' health was, you know, being impacted or even, you know, seeing the most extreme of workers dying and those stories being covered up. So that's kind of also where, you know, my work in 2013, I want to say, is when, like, Cooperation Jackson kind of came 
into existence as an organization. While at Co-op Jackson, she experienced a clear moment of cultural organizing. I'll let her tell it. I guess by definition, cultural organizing um, for me would mean placing culture at the center of an organizing strategy. But it also means deeply knowing the strategy and story of a community. You know, why people sing the songs that they do, you know, the stories of how people's families got from one place to another, you know, the way people speak from prayers that they pray to, you know, why they cook their food the way they do, you know, everything from the food, the language, the literature, um, traditions, you know, the, you know, connection to ancestral practice, you know, is what cultural organizing is. And, you know, it's powerful because it is what gives organizing its magic. You know, um, it's what our communities have done to, you know, be connected to our ancestors, you know, to survive, to find like hope and joy and inspiration and really connect to with each other and remember why we're doing the work that we're doing to fight for climate and environmental justice with our communities. That's the power of cultural organizing, the power of voice and the power of lived experience, holding space, being seen. These are the first steps to empathy and connecting, and more importantly, creating change, whether through policy or other community solutions. That's why story-based strategy and narrative strategy are important parts of Just Transition. There are ways to shape storytelling to best reach the hearts and minds of the intended audience. Both Chris and Lenina, who work at the Center for Story-Based Strategy, CSS for short, tell their origin story into the movement, with powerful examples of cultural power and story-based strategy. Chris Lagunas, a practitioner of story-based strategy and a trainer, came to this work through migrant rights. I came into this work through pretty much just getting involved with organizing in my community. I'm originally from South America, from Chile, and I, I was born in the last few years of the dictatorship but got to grow up kind of in the in the grieving process of the country rather than in in the in the dictatorship itself kind of in the aftermath and a lot of that aftermath had to do with trying to build a country that was stripped of of everything and in in that process i think politicians made really bad decisions and the whole chilean economy crashed and for like 10 years no one in the country had a job so my dad said i have enough money for one ticket so I'm going to the United States and because we're so far away I'm gonna I'm gonna fly there on a tourist visa and when it runs out I'm gonna stay and I'm gonna try to to do something so y'all can have a better life because here there's nothing for us. I arrived in the United States um, like at 13 years old uh, on a tourist visa under the premise that we were going to on vacation to Disney World and like, I've been here for 20 years and I still haven't seen Mickey Mouse, yo. Um, <laughs> we never went to Disney World. Um, and you know, my my uh, my family moved to Boston and I've been here ever since. My sister got a full-blown scholarship to go to college and then it was suddenly taken away from her because of her immigration status and like all her dreams were crushed. Like she was set up to do her thing and, and then she couldn't. And that made me feel really self-righteous and mad. And that's when I found my first like immigrant rights meeting that I went to because I wanted to do something about that. 
yeah, so that got me started in organizing and in, in, in field organizing and youth organizing with fellow undocumented young people from all over the world. Lenina Nadal, who helps the Center for Story-Based Strategy connect to its network and deeply engage with orgs that are interested in telling moving stories, connects the power of storytelling to her Puerto Rican pride. I'm a second-generation Boricua. I have pretty deep roots in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my grandparents worked on cane fields and farms before coming here, and here they worked in factories and kitchens. And early on, they became active in union movements and were always active in the movement for Puerto Rican independence. My parents were both involved in the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, and that existed here and in Puerto Rico. And they fought for Black, Chicano, and Puerto Rican studies. So very early on, my story was changing. And I think the story of my family was about, and the, and the changing of that story was really about survival. Um, when my grandparents came here, there were signs that said no dogs or Puerto Ricans allowed in many stores. Um, they had very hard jobs. And even though they were very disciplined, they weren't really allowed to express their voice and their protest and really be heard. And um, I think at, at home, you know, they were musicians, they were artists, their life was really full. But in society, all of that was really invisible. And I grew up with a different story because of my parents' involvement in movement, that independence and that fight was beautiful, that Black was beautiful, that Black liberation was for everybody. And so, this was a very different story than I was hearing from church in churches or in school or other places that I attended, other institutions uh, that were influencing me. And so that story of like my people being trash versus a story about us being essential and worthy is a battle of the story. And I think had a big influence on why I've always been attracted to this work, no matter where I've been, whether it's like media or social justice or after-school services or things like that. Um, yeah, I think that um, the story is about both maintaining oppressive systems and it's also about liberation and it's a power struggle and we're in it to, to help define um, and, and figure out what that liberation can look like. The Center for Story-Based Strategy cultivates imagination spaces where story, grassroots leadership, organizing, and democracy are interwoven strategies to build power. We have uh, a staff or offices in California, but we, we have staff all across the country. For example, Lenina's in New York, I'm in Boston, and we have folks on the West Coast as well and uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And in addition to that, we have networks of folks who have been part of our story-based strategy universe that take up different roles in our network and also get to uh, work on collaborative projects with us and so on and so forth. According to the Center for Story-Based Strategy, story-based strategy is a participatory approach that links movement building with an analysis of narrative power and places storytelling at the center of social change. Every practitioner defines it in their own way. In other words, Think of story-based strategy as the name of the methodology that allows us to create narrative strategy. It's one practice of cultural organizing. Stories are interconnected stars in the night sky. When you put them together, you form a constellation. Story-based strategy 
helps construct each star in the constellation of meaning. And what that means is that story-based strategy is a set of tools that are all connected together and rooted in um, popular education that, that allow us to build like real-time analysis of the dominant narratives right in, in mainstream society that uphold oppression and gives us a pathway to break that with our own collective stories, asserting our own power and using our creativity and imagination. So we have different tools like narrative power media analysis and elemental story and things like that, that really allows us to grasp how our opposition is talking about, how we ourselves talk about that, talk about ourselves in the media, sorry. Um, and tools like Battle of the Story and, and Drama Triangles and so on and so forth that allow us to create this new narrative that we believe actually reflects our story and our truth, right? And, and then tools that can move us into action like points of intervention and so on and so forth. In CSS's framework, there's four steps to story-based strategy. One, break down the power to make sure you know your goals, who your constituency is, or what you're targeting and who your audience is. Two, break down the opposing narratives to know what the stories you are countering are saying, what their underlying assumptions are, and how your stories can challenge those assumptions. Three, really deeply reflect on who your audience is, what they care about, and how they'll interpret your story. And four, craft your story using the five elements of story, conflict, characters, imagery, foreshadowing, and underlying assumptions. But in essence, you're building the story that breaks down the stories that bolster and fortify the status quo and the existing power structures, the stories that challenge preconceived social norms. Uh, aha moment for me was that narrative strategy is about changing the meaning and the belief and actually getting people to believe in a story and that that's what the power structure and the system was doing pretty effectively, right? They were getting people to believe the idea that, you know, if you're successful and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're gonna be great in the society and you're gonna achieve everything you need to achieve. And there was not enough people really telling an opposite story, right? Which is that these systems of oppression were very strong and that there was a way for us to find a, a point of liberation. And so narrative strategy is, vital for our movements because if we can get people to believe and to find meaning, um, the way that people believe and find meaning, you know, in, in other ways, in, in what their morals are, what their values are, what their culture is, what their religion is, right? Like those are things that are so much a part of who we are as people. And so if we could connect on that level, not just on like a campaign strategy, but actually a narrative strategy that we could, we could win, you know, as they say, the hearts and minds, you know, combined, right? Like the full, the full human and, and the, few, the full self, I think is a huge part of, of storytelling is, is how we change the sense of value and worth, especially in a capitalist society. <laughs> Opposing stories take the power out of stereotypes and common beliefs. It is the counter to dehumanization. A long, 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 long time ago, maybe in like, man, I want to say it was like somewhere around 2008 and 2010, there was like a, a moment in the immigrant rights movement where the phrase uh, undocumented, unafraid became really big, like really, really popular. 
And the reason why that happened was because we did a battle of the story, right? Which is a tool in which you get to break down a, a story and all of its elements. So like, who are the character? What's the conflict that's being highlighted? What is the imagery that's being painted in front of our eyes to be able to believe that story is true and like all these different things. So it does it from the perspective of your opposition and from your own perspective. And we realized that from, from the perspective of our opposition, we were like a bunch of criminals that had to live in the shadow because we were illegal and we were here to take everything from Americans. And like, you know, all these really, really like intense, like fake archetypes that were like very much part of, of the conversation at the time and to an extent still are. And then we did the story of our side of how, like who are the characters of our story? Like what's going on with us? And what we ended up with is seeing like mothers and fathers who are looking for better lives for their kids. Um, we realized that we were students who we just wanted to study and then like have a job and live a normal life. Like we had a moment in which we realized that like all these things that were being told about us were lies and, and we could see it right in front of us. And that's how we determined that um, we needed to let them know that we weren't afraid anymore. And it just so happened to be coming out day, um, which was, um, you know, a very meaningful day in the queer community. And a lot of, I would say like 90% of the young people that we work with in the group that, that I was a part of either identify as queer or trans. And um, they won, they were planning for a coming now day action. And they realized that this was also an opportunity to bring in the intersection with their immigration status. So based on these story-based strategy tools that we had used like Battle of the Story, in which we got to dig deeper and actually reclaim our own story and our own identities and who we actually are in the world, we were able to set up a stage in front of the ICE building, ISIS immigration police, right? And with a megaphone, every person got up there and said, hey, my name is this and I'm queer, I'm undocumented and I'm unafraid. And it was like the first time where publicly undocumented people stood in front of those who oppressed them directly and said, I don't care who you are, I'm not scared. Stories are important to just transition because they lift up and empower voices and people, not just numbers or statistics. Narrative strategy is really important in achieving a just transition because I think that just transition is almost the perfect umbrella term that that can that represents I think a lot of us who are who come from communities that face a lot of adversity. And that's a vast and rich and story that's hard, that's beautiful. It has all these elements that are not often uplifted uh, as part of the truth. Like oftentimes when we talk about workers, when we talk about parents, when we talk about students and documented folks, we mostly see the news either talking about the worst case scenarios or the worst examples or numbers, simplifying people to numbers. Um, so I think that story-based strategy allows us to say, hey, like, Let's let's take a breath, recognize that all of us are humans, that we have some very real systematic and societal challenges. And in order to get through this, we need to be together. Right. And that process of togetherness is not just about community. In this way, stories snowball and become larger than life. They become a way of being, a practice, 
an album of artists and collaborations that continues for life. And stories build the bigger we. That was really a lot of the ways that our members this year even survived, you know, and the ways that they supported each other, like through the mutual aid work, creating healing space, you know, for those who needed that. Like, I'm really excited about that. So, you know, I'm looking forward to working with all of the people, all of the communities, because I feel like there's so much to say um, that it requires. This album is going to require so so many people's voices. But even as the voices form a chorus. As stories form a narrative, as a narrative becomes truth, each star in the constellation is sacred. The most important lesson that I've learned from all of the people that have poured into me and, and taught me and just built my capacity and skill as an organizer is to, to be sure to hold the narrative. You know, you, we all have our different experience, experiences and perspectives, but making sure that the water, that the, the narrative doesn't get watered down. Um, and holding that sacred is, is something sacred. Last year, the Climate Justice Alliance, along with partner organizations, Movement Generation, and New Economy Coalition, released the Creative Wildfire Manifesto and a call to creatives, artists, and cultural workers to challenge what's been considered quote-unquote normal and spark the collective imagination. Transition is inevitable. Justice is not. 21 artists created 14 projects representing the manifesto, from augmented reality to songs, a coloring book, webcomic, and more. They've created ways to embody and experience just transition through all of our senses, painting vivid and beautiful imaginations of the future we can build together. It's important to cultivate these spaces, opportunities, and shared goals for artists to create together on our path to liberation. I think for artists, organizers, um, people who want to transform the world to find a sense of place again and really continue to define what kind of places we need to really inhabit again so that we break a sense of, of isolation and alienation and loneliness that, you know, the pandemic in some ways um, helped to foster Coming, kind of being able to create spaces where people are imagining together, cooking together, dreaming together, but also spaces for people to be alone and to be able to like practice and innovate and flesh out their ideas. So I think all of those things are really important in terms of like a path towards liberation. In terms of sharing the desired future state, yeah, I mean, I think it's all rooted in the, you know, the ideas that people have been talking about in terms of a just transition, it's going to take a lot of collaboration, cooperation, and those are things that humans are good at, right? So actually that helped create the current system we have. Not just for the movement, for the cause, for the work, but because art is human, creating is human, storytelling is human. And we find joy in creating together. I think a group of um, activists had bought in Bushwick, Brooklyn, called Mayday Space, and had like three floors and huge uh, space for just making art. And there was hundreds of artists that would go there pretty much anytime we were not working or um, or on weekends. And it was great because it was an actual space where we could talk to each other, compare ideas, you know, where... Um, a, a muralist could spend a day just really sketching out a mural and then have like 
five or six people that were around or children that could come around because it was a great, you could bring your child. I have a daughter and I was able to bring my daughter and just paint the mural in and, you know, um, give with some direction from the artist, you know. So I think that like that creation of community that artists were able to, to, to cultivate um, and also just the, the, the space to, to imagine together as a community um, was really vital and, um, and, and created a lot of what we see today in terms of like how we think about the climate justice movement and art and that intersection, you know, um, sunflowers, butterflies, um, lifesavers, right? Think all these kinds of uh, um, images in our, in our mind, um, where, where, you know, goddesses and, and, um, and different, different kinds of mythology around climate. And like, it's just like all of these things are still active. Um, and it was because so much investment was placed in artists and in people who were thinking in that way um, to, to push forward another, another rate. While art and storytelling allows us to imagine better futures and a more self-actualized society, we do know that there are living within the confines of current reality and capitalism and have to be mindful that we too don't form extractive relationships with creatives. It really brings us to the reality that like, even as people who are navigating a pursuit of justice, we still have to like, to an extent we're forced to produce and to do things like paying rent and like having food on our table. And I think that a lot of times artists don't get that basic level recognition. And a lot of times they're kind of approaches like, hey, can you do me a favor? I need a flyer. And and it's kind of like, hey, can you do me a favor and pay me for that flyer? Because I got to eat tomorrow. You feel me? So I think that part of having non-extractive relationships is being intentional about having a practice of compensating artists first and foremost, and in a way that's dignified too, right? I think that that's a thing that shows up a lot and it's like very concrete that a lot of groups and organizations can do is like have a budget to to collaborate with artists to the extent that you can, right? I think that's one of the things that's really important. And then another thing is like, how do we redefine our relationship with artists and not just engage with artists when we need something from them, right? Like. I don't, I, I want to know, like, as an artist, what do you have going on? What are the connections? How do I lift you up in the same ways that you lift me up with your art and, like, elevating our message and what we're doing? I think that that reciprocity and that exchange in relationship is really important and a good balance can be found through conversation because not every artist and every organization is the same. And knowing that we are still operating within current reality, what happens when climate justice does start to penetrate the mainstream? What happens to the individual stories that Monica says we should hold sacred? Ultimately, as stories enter in the narrative, they change what it's made up of, manifesting and taking the truths from fiction and future visions to constitute a new present moment, a new collective vision. It should be for building and creating together. Yeah, like that's the future that I want. I want for my my daughter, for my grandchildren is, is one that where those are the values that are really helping to move that, that we are um, all familiar with now, which is very extractive, um, but that, that those values are centered in collaboration and cooperation so that we can see a lot more beauty in the world. That's such a collective vision that it would be a little unfair of me to, to even dare to imagine it on my own. That being said, 
I think that I would love to see a future in which people have dignity and respect where their life is actually valued. I'd like to see a future where, you know, queer young people don't have to sleep on the street because um, they don't have a place to go. Um, I'd love to see a place where immigrants can move and find livelihood without the worry of incarceration or uh, persecution and even death. Um, I'd love to see a future see of prisons. Um, I'd love to see a future in which it's okay for my mom to not know how to speak English. Um, there are so many things, you know, and to me, most of those things are tied to the beauty of human relationships and the beauty of human relationships with nature. And I would love for all those things to be upheld and including the longevity of our planet. Thanks for tuning in to Stories from Home, Moving the Just Transition. In our next and last episode, we'll talk more about shifting relationships and values to align with our future visions. Make sure your heart stays lit and keep this episode playing to hear in full Love Black Warrior by Monica Atkins, a.k.a. Surreal. Stories from Home is a production of the Climate Justice Alliance featuring me, your host, Keenan Rhodes, story editors Jessica Zhao and Olivia Burlingame, and sound editing by Elijah Pogues. To learn more about the Climate Justice Alliance, visit climatejusticealliance.org. The song Love Black Warrior is an ode to, you know, black people, black communities to be reminded of the love that we have for each other, to be reminded of the love that we have for liberation, the the love that we have for our communities, you know, the black, the black that is the hue of the fertile soil, the black that is the hue of all colors, the power that is in our blackness and the abundance that's in our blackness. Yeah, the warrior, the the warrior spirit, the ancestors that are riding with us and have been riding with us and are going to ride this thing out with us on our side. So this is Love Black Warrior, and I hope you enjoy. If the power's with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soul while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource, change the story that's been told. We say black warriors filled with black joy. If the power's with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soul while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource, change the story that's been told. We say black warriors filled with black joy. Do you know what the land and milk and honey tastes like? Poison water, stolen land, a plate of genocide. You could kill the flesh, but the spirit don't die. And we rooted in love, so let the spiritual guide. Came to speak peace, but I see them crooked eyes. Your politics speak where your loyalty lies. Corporate greed make them politicians lie. And white supremacy be the devil in disguise. When the wicked draw their swords, they will be destroyed. For there is no reward for those who withhold. Riches and the gold from those it came from. Heavy is the crown on the child it's placed on. So those who wish to harm me, they may cleanse the ruin. I pray their forgiveness, they know not what they're doing. We're on the front line, so we look to our solution. The truth needs to lie with corporate toxic that is spewing God trouble.
fight to liberate the soul while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource, change the story that's been told. We some If the power's with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soul while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource, change the story that's been told. We some